Thank you, Jen, for that devotion. I appreciate that. You know, I found, you know, as I grow older, you know, finding peace with God is, requires obedience on my part, and sometimes I don't want to obey. I just want the peace, you know, but fortunately, it, you know, you look at Abraham, you look at some of the others, he asked them to do something and required them to step out in faith and to do something, and then the then the peace came. Um, I was getting ready to come in this morning, and some people were teasing me about, man, you're starting to get pretty long-winded. You're getting a little too comfortable up there. You're talking too much, and man, it goes on and on. And I was re- reminded of a, a, a story about uh, one of our forgotten presidents, uh, President Calvin Coolidge. And uh, he was at a, Calvin Coolidge was a very quiet man, very non-assuming type of person. Uh, he didn't, uh, didn't talk a lot, he really didn't do a lot as president. His idea of being president was just kind of hang out, and if something bad happens, well, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it, <laughs> you know, whenever. And uh, they were at a party, and uh, a reporter come up to him and said, you know, Mr. President, sometime tonight, I, I'm going to bet that I can get you to say more than three words tonight. And Coolidge looked at her, and he goes, you lose. So, so hopefully I can prove to some of you that, no, I don't have to get up here and, and go on and on. But uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the things I like to do, one of the hobbies that I have, is I like to coach sports, and really it's about the only hobby I have that's worth anything. Other hobbies are, they waste money or they you know, waste time and really don't fulfill me that much, but, but coaching always uh, is a lot of fun. And I want to tell you about the greatest block in the history of football. Uh, you didn't realize it, but it actually happened uh, Graham versus Tecumseh about 10 years ago in a freshman game. Greatest block in the history of football. And uh, that year we had a really good team. Uh, we, uh, we won just about every game and uh, had a lot of fun. Just a great group of guys. And there was this one kid on the team. He's what you would call a glue guy. He was uh, just a little guy, a little shrimpy dude. His name was Christian, just a little guy. And he uh, was very slow, he couldn't run, he couldn't throw the ball, you know. But he was a guy, he loved football, he wanted to play football. So, okay, you know, we, uh, we ended up, I think we made him a receiver. It's like in baseball, you put the, the bad kids in right field, you know, because nobody, has, well, you, you get some of these, you go play receiver over there. Okay, okay so he's going to play receiver and. And all season long, you know, he never got a pass thrown to him. He never uh, got to really be engaged in any play. The play would end over there, and he'd be halfway down the field over there, just away from everything. But he loved to play, and he was a positive kid, and he was one of the kids that got everybody fired up and pumped up and ready to go. And, and uh, he never complained about the fact that you know, he didn't get to play a whole lot, and somebody said, man, you do a lot of rah-rah and stuff, you hardly ever get to play. And he goes, that's all right, I just got to be ready. When coach calls my number, I'm going to be ready. So we got in a tight game over at Tecumseh, over there, and uh, 
We were running this one play that uh, you know should have been getting yards and uh, you know wasn't because of the way Tecumseh was playing their defense, and so we decided let's let's change it up a little bit. Instead of uh, you running the kid off uh, wide out, running down the field, taking the defender with him, they're playing a zone. That kid's going to bail out of there anyways. Let's instead of you running down the field, I want you to run flat down the line. And every time we, we flip the ball out to the side, run a sweep, their outside linebacker comes up to blow that up. I want you to run straight down the line, and you're going to blast that guy. He's, never, he's not even going to see you coming. He's all ready to go, and he's only the, just a little shrimpy dude. So he's out there ready to go in a red nine, red nine hut. He comes straight down the line, this big linebacker. He's as big as Larry probably. He come across the line. This little kid hit him and just depleted him. Pow! Oh! You, know, you could hear him groan when he got hit. And our little dude hit him you know, with everything he had. I remember his arms and legs flew out like this when he hit him. And they ended up in a pile on the ground. And sure enough, the ball goes outside. Our guy's running up the sideline. The corner comes up. He puts a move on him. Forty yards later, touchdown. And I remember the whole team just mobbed that little guy. That was the greatest block in the history of football. They're just going nuts. Even the kid that scored a touchdown, he came back. That was amazing, you know. Here's this little guy that you know, the whole season hadn't done anything. But in that one moment when we really needed him, when his number was called, he stepped up. He came down and he blasted that kid. What a story of a kid that, you know, he, didn't, he never quit. He didn't get discouraged. He didn't, didn't give up. He didn't score touchdowns. He's, you know, somebody that's, you know, there's a saying I like to use in sports, be phenomenal or be forgotten. And at Graham, we have a lot of hardworking kids, but they're not real phenomenal. And you don't really remember very many players. But nobody, every, we still every once in a while have somebody mention that, the greatest block in the history of football. And that, that, that little guy. And Whenever I read the Christmas story, I think about uh, Mary and Joseph and what, uh, you know, what they went through and, and the whole story. And I think of Joseph. To me, he's sort of that... Uh, the ultimate bench player. Because if you think about Joseph, what, what, what's he known for? What did he do? What did he, I mean, there was no miracles associated with him. There was no real conflict in the sense he was never arrested. He was never really persecuted directly for anything, uh, you know. But yet he has one of the most important moments you know, throughout the, the history of, of Christianity. Joseph was a righteous man. And he was, uh, as we know later in the Bible, it talks about him being a carpenter. He was just an average guy. But he was a righteous guy. He was a righteous man. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 1. And I apologize for not doing the PowerPoints anymore, but those things... Caused me so much grief, I finally forget it. Sorry. <laughs> I'll flap my arms and 
squawk like a chicken or do something to make you laugh once in a while. I don't, I don't know. But uh, Maybe over Christmas break I'll have some time to put something together for you. But Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what are we talking about? His mother... Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph. Being betrothed to someone, that was an action that was as binding as as a modern marriage. Okay? Now, they hadn't officially been, you know, the the marriage part, they have not consummated the marriage, let's put it that way. They haven't enjoyed their wedding night and run off to the honeymoon and all that. But being betrothed, being... I guess for us it would be kind of like being engaged. Uh, many people viewed that as something that was as binding as a marriage. And the only way you got out of that was uh, a legal process. You had to get a divorce. So you had to do other things. So betrothal was something as binding as, as marriage. Legally, they were regarded as married, even though the, the physical union had not taken place yet. So, you know... The birth of of Jesus, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, okay, they're hooked up. (laughs) Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, you all have heard this story, and you know the, you know the situation we find ourselves in. Here we have a a young girl. I don't want to guess on her age. A lot of people. uh, some people, uh, they, they like to go to extremes. Well, she was probably a young woman, probably in her 20s. And then you have the others. Well, she's probably like 11 or 12 years old. She was just a little kid. Probably somewhere in between there. Maybe to the, actually to the younger side of that. Joseph, it doesn't really say. Uh, it's thought he was probably older than she was. Again, I don't want to suggest he was an older man, you know, with a little 12, 13-year-old. I was disgusted a month or so ago. Uh, somebody in, a, in the political realm suggested that men being with 12, 13-year-olds was acceptable because, well, it's in the Bible, see? I mean, I'm a Joseph and Mary. I'm, come on. That's ridiculous. In Matthew chapter 2, Joseph is described as a righteous man. He was probably a teenager himself. In many cultures throughout life, this idea of the teenage years, is that's a foreign concept. You're either a child or you're an adult. There is no in-between time that, like in our country, where we have, you know, from 13 to 19, you're kind of... You're not really a kid anymore, but we don't want to treat you like an adult yet, so you're kind of trapped in the the middle there. In most cultures and throughout history, that that did not exist. You were either a child or you were an adult. Joseph was considered to be an adult. But he was a righteous man. He was right with God. I think he was, today we would say he was saved. And there's lots of controversy over the, the age and all that, but... I want you to focus on the, the fact that he's a righteous man. He was devoted to God. He wanted to obey God. He wanted to obey the law. 
He wanted to do what was pleasing to God all throughout his life of what's recorded in the Bible. He's always trying to do the right thing. He's trying to obey God and the law and civil law. Trying to obey you know, the Roman thing. Got to go do the census. And off they go and, and this and that and lots of other things. Um, but uh, he was a righteous man. Let's continue the story. And Joseph, her husband, verse 19, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. You can see the, the problem here. Uh, if you've ever really looked at the, the, the story before, here they're betrothed, but they have not yet uh, come together. And she's pregnant. Most people are going to go, what's going on here? Something funny going on. Either you and Joseph have been fooling around or, or Mary's not faithful or something else has happened. Either way, Joseph, you're in a bad position. <laughs> you gotta, you're going to have to make some choices here. You know, this doesn't look good for a righteous man to be betrothed to a pregnant girl. Something's uh, up. And that would cause people to, you know, talk and to look and, you know. But Joseph, being a righteous man and a merciful man, he didn't want to disgrace Mary. He, was, he could have very easily disgraced her. This woman, this woman, I, oh, we found, oh, she's pregnant. Look what she did to me, you know, and could have thrown it all onto her. Joseph understood that God is a merciful God. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Joseph, being a righteous man, probably knew his scrolls. <laughs> he knew the word of God. And he, I'm sure, understood that God desires mercy. Not always the exact letter of the law. Yeah, he wants mercy here. And Joseph, I'm sure he loved Mary, and he didn't want to disgrace her. He wanted to show mercy. So he was going to send her away secretly. We'll get you out of this. We'll find a way to deal with this. They're not going to take you. You're not going to be stoned. You're not going to have your reputation ruined. We'll find, find a way. Verse 20, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They should call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I love that you know, Joseph didn't give in to pressure from the outside. He didn't worry about what other people would think. 
He was a righteous man, and he was determined to do what God was asking him to do. It's interesting how the angel appears to Mary physically. There, the angel is there. But to Joseph, the angel always appears in a dream. I've often wondered why that is. You know, the angel appears to some people, but to others. It says the angel of, uh, excuse me, um, uh, da, 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 yeah, where'd it go here? Yeah, the angel of the Lord. Now, whether or not it was Gabriel or a different angel or something, God got Joseph's attention through a dream. Being a righteous man, he wasn't going to discount that. I mean, I've had some wild dreams. You wake up and you're like, what in the world was that one about? Oh, my. Uh, let's just forget about that and go on to the next, you know, I'm going back to sleep. But to have a dream like this, where obviously Joseph had prayed about this and he had talked to God about it, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He has this dream Joseph's probably thinking, why me? <laughs> Look, I just fell in love with her, and we wanted to have a normal life like everybody, you know, and holy cow, what's all this, you know, uh, we're going to call a, a baby, he's going to be named Jesus, he's going to save the people from his sins, could this be the, the Messiah that, that was promised? Holy moly, what is going on? It's interesting, the Lord and his divine providence and his grace. He intervened directly and spared Joseph of the the trauma of actually carrying out his divorce plans. You think of all that he, both of them would have gone through. The Bible says, but while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream, saying, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This isn't man-made. This isn't natural. This is supernatural. As my mom likes to say, it's a God thing. Okay? This verse, it underscores the miraculous nature of the, the virgin birth, the supernatural character surrounding the entire event. It also gives divine assurance to Joseph who is here called the son of David. It gives him assurance that it's okay. This is part of the plan. God is is using you in this moment for a very specific reason. Now today, most people remember Mary. Mary's, you know, uh, venerated in in, in the Catholic Church, and, and we sing songs about Mary, did you know? And we don't ever sing anything about Joseph. Maybe we need to write a song about Joseph or something. But uh, uh, anyways, we don't remember a whole lot about Joseph. But he had a very important part to play because he was a son of David. God picked Joseph so that Jesus would have a legitimate royal lineage that legally came through Joseph who was a descendant of King David. Jesus is a son of David. He's in that lineage, that line. That was prophesied. That had to be fulfilled. Joseph was specifically chosen because he was a righteous man who was a legal descendant of King David, 
which fulfilled a, a prophecy. There have been many times I've asked God, why me? <laughs> why me? What is going on here? And again and again, I've been shown that it's, you know, to fulfill his purpose, not always mine. Well, here's Joseph wondering, you know, what to do, and he has this dream, and angels often appeared in visual form, but to, I think to underscore the supernatural character of Christ's advent, and not to draw a lot of attention, okay, Matthew's story goes in and talks about uh, some different dreams here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, the angel appears in a dream to Joseph. The angel says, don't divorce Mary, take her into your own home. Okay. Matthew 2, verse 12, another dream. Joseph and Mary probably had the dream as well. Don't return to Herod. Look out for this guy. Verse 13, the angel appears in a dream again, warns Joseph to go down to Egypt to escape Herod. Matthew 2, verse 19, an angel in a dream tells Joseph to return to Israel. I mean, every time Joseph goes to sleep, he's probably thinking, we're going to have another dream tonight? (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 22, another dream. Once they get back, warning him, don't go into the region of Galilee. Why all the sneaking around? I mean, if this is the Son of God, why didn't... Why didn't God the Father just make things so nothing would happen to Jesus? Just pave the way for him. I thought about that this week, and I think God chooses to bring about his will through the actions of righteous people, like Joseph. God could do anything he wants, but he created us not just for for us to worship him, but that he could bring about his will. God chooses to bring about his will through the actions of righteous people. It's just how he chooses to do it. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God fulfills his will through us. We often say, why did God allow that to happen? Why doesn't God do something? God is trying to do something. He's trying to do it through the hearts and the minds and the actions of righteous people. At that time, there were different groups of of, uh, Jewish people. There were different religious groups. In uh, Israel at that time, you had a very small group of, I guess very theologically, you'd call them liberals. They had a very... Uh, liberal view of of the scriptures. They were probably influenced by the Sadducees, which is a group that didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They denied the supernatural. Um, You know, they may have had a lot of influence on people as well. God's not going to bring about the Messiah through that group. Then there were the legalists at that time. These were the Pharisees. You've all read about the Pharisees and everybody they influenced who believed they could work their way to, to, uh, to eternal life. That they could work their way into God's presence by their own righteousness and their own adherence to Jewish ceremony. God put the law out there. He wants us to be perfect. We're going to follow the law. 
We can be good enough on our own. We don't need a Savior. We have the law. That's all we need. A lot of people followed them. God's thinking, I'm sure, very presumptuous of me to think what God's thinking, but I don't think God was going to pick, the Messiah is not going to come from the Pharisees. Then there were the politicizers, uh, the, you'd call them nationalists today. Uh, they were the zealots, very zealous for the preservation of the nation of Israel. They wanted political autonomy. They hated the Romans. They want independence. Let's overthrow Rome. Let's get back our autonomy as a people. They're often nicknamed the Sicarii because they carried little daggers. Would often stab Romans. I mean, these people were, we call them terrorists today. Let's commit acts of terror against the Romans. You know, this might help bring about the, uh, the restoration of Israel. Well, God's not going to pull the Messiah or bring the Messiah through that group. A lot of people thought maybe that's who the Messiah would be. The conquering king who would come along and, you know, let the Romans have it. Then you had another group called the Essenes. They were the ascetics. They're, they're hermits. They live out by themselves. Okay? They live there they're like little monks. They would isolate themselves from all society, thinking about deep thoughts. Uh, wow, holy, the holy scriptures and oh, the deep meanings of the, you know, just really getting into that stuff and forgetting that there's a whole life out there that you need to go live and to. You need to serve and to worship. And in the midst of this mix, in a nation that had fallen away from God, there was a very, very small remnant of people that uh, were righteous to God. A very small group of people. In fact, even after the three-year ministry of Jesus, after his death and his resurrection, with all the believers of Jerusalem running around, Gathered up in the upper room, there were only about a hundred of them, 120 of them. That was it. There was a small remnant of righteous people that I think got it, that understood what Jesus was, who Jesus was to become. People like Zacharias and Elizabeth, who we talked about, that's the father and the mother of John the Baptist. I think they were part of that group of, of righteous Jews who, who loved God and, and got it. God was working the coming of His Messiah and, and the forerunner of the Messiah, the, uh, John the Baptist. He was going to bring these men out of this little remnant. God was working this out through this little group of righteous people, people who belonged to Him, who believed in God, who were right with God. Because I think they had come to grips with their sinfulness. They knew they couldn't save themselves. They knew they couldn't uh, you know, read the Bible and that was enough. Just going to temple wasn't enough. They had to repent of their sins and throw themselves down and, and ask God for mercy. God had forgiven them. This is the righteous remnant that Joseph finds himself from. He's just a little guy. And a very small group 
of people whose hearts belong to God. That is the group that God would bring the Messiah out of. So what happened to Joseph? I mean, well, so Joseph, you know, the angel says you're going to have a Mary's going to have a son, but you know, it's going to be a big thing. And you got to keep him safe and keep him moving around. But then, really, you don't hear about Joseph anymore. What happened to him? Well, you know, I did a little research on that. And there are a lot of ideas. But the most common answer is the one that, you know, the Bible says. We just don't know. Most likely, he died. He died before Jesus entered his Ministry. We know he was alive at least until Jesus was about three. Remember, they were on that trip and Jesus got lost and, and they looked around for him. I think for three days they looked for him. And then he says, Oh, you should have looked in the, you know, my father's house. Where did you think I was going to be? But for whatever reason, Joseph is he's gone by the time that Jesus begins. His ministry. When you look all throughout the life of Christ, it's revealed in the Bible. There's no mention of, of Joseph, his father, other than there right at the birth. When Jesus was uh, crucified, Joseph of Arimathea took the body and buried it, doing something that uh, Jesus' earthly father probably would have been responsible for. If Joseph would have still been alive, Joseph, his father, would have been the one to have gotten the body and have taken it to burial. But he wasn't there. For some reason, uh, Joseph was not there. And I don't want to reach too far here, but I was thinking about it. And, you know, as Jesus would go through his ministry, he would often talk about my father, my father, my father in heaven. <laughs> there could be no doubt of who Jesus' father was. As long as Joseph was around, and people would always say, eh, Joseph, that's Jesus' father. I remember Joseph, yeah, that's Jesus' father. Jesus says, you know, my father. And they look at Joseph, like, what? Now, Joseph is gone. He's out of the way. Joseph, I believe, you know, Joseph's like the ultimate bench player on a basketball team or a football team. He's not the superstar. God doesn't expect all of us to be the father of the Christ. But he does expect us to live righteous lives like Joseph. Live a righteous life so that when the time comes, I can use you. Be usable. Being a Joseph is like, you know, when you've got to pull that kid off the, the bench or in our football game, look, they're not going to expect this, but I'm going to ask you to do something really amazing. You're going to get under and blast that guy that's been giving us the devil the whole game. And he goes out there and he does it. For that one moment, that one brief moment, he was usable. And he turned the entire course of, of the game. Joseph was a righteous man who kept himself usable. So that when God would ever ask him in his life, I need you, I need you to do this for me. Joseph says, here I am. 
I got this. Let me do it. Living a righteous life makes us usable by God. Take prayer, for instance. There are three different ideas or facts you might think about concerning prayer and our spiritual lives and just you know, being useful. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I've always been troubled by this, and I try to figure out exactly what they're talking about here. And some days I think I got it, and some days I don't. I don't know. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. He's talking about husbands here, husbands and wives. It says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. What's that mean, so that your prayers won't be hindered? A lot of my uncles were fire and brimstone preachers, and I remember when I was... uh, graduated from high school. One of them pulled me aside and he said, you know, God's, uh, God's going to use you for something someday. You want to make sure that uh, you know, you're, not, you're not screwing up so that God can use you. You don't want your prayers hindered. I was always like, what is he talking about? My prayers hindered. You know, do my prayers get stuck on the ceiling and they just kind of hang there floating around and they don't go up to, to God or or what's the deal? Or, or can my life be so miserable and so unrighteous? And can I be so disobedient that my prayers are hindered? That they do not reach to God? God knows all things. He knows the prayers. You ever have a kid lie to you, to your face? You knew they were lying to you? You knew they didn't mean something? How many of my prayers, Father, have been that way as I pray things to you? And you know, God knows, John, you're not going to do that. You don't really want that like a dog goes back to the vomit. You're going to run right back there, given the chance. That person you said you wouldn't hurt, you know you're going to do it. And when I'm like that, I'm not usable. God can't use me. Like the kid on the, on the football team, you want to, hey, hey, you need to run in there. He's over here fooling around, kicking the water bottles. He's like, he ain't even paying attention. Heck with that guy. I better get somebody else. You want to be usable. We want to be usable by God. Joseph is a great example of that. He's a man who was a righteous man. He lived for God. He loved God. He wanted to please God. He obeyed God. And even though he had just a small, teeny part to play, it was a very important part. He was a son of David. Jesus, born into the world through the Virgin Mary, could claim he was from the line of David, fulfilling all kinds of prophecies, proving, again, that God's word is real and that God is faithful and he's going to bring about the things that he promised. But God needs faithful, righteous people to be able to do that. That's how he's chosen to do that in the world. We can't sit around and wait for God to move. He wants to move, but through us. So this Christmas season, as we, th- we think about you know, peace and, and hope and you know, the manger and all that, you know, ask yourself, can I be a righteous person? You can through the blood of Christ. 
God sent the Messiah for us. God knew that none of us could be perfect. Jesus was born for us so that we might find salvation, so that we might be made righteous in the sight of God, so that we can become usable. And that's my prayer for us today, that we can continue to do that, to love God and and really try to serve Him and to be righteous and to love Him so that when the time comes, when we're called to get up off the bench and go do something, we can be like Joseph and, and serve our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your love. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us to, when the time comes, to step up and and to, to be ready. To testify about you. To serve somebody in your name. To be your physical body in the world. So when people want to see God do something, They'll see His church moving and serving and loving. And through that, they'll know that you're real and that you love us and that you love them. Lord, we love you today and we give you the praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.